Thanks so much, Leon. What a joy it is to be here in, uh, where are we? Hales Owen? I did know that. It's so great. Thank you for the honour, uh, Alison, as well, to, to be here in your amazing church, amazing conference. What an amazing building this is as well. Thank God for the fire. Are we allowed to say that for insurance reasons or not? We, we actually had one of our buildings in Manchester burn down about four years ago. And uh, one of our operations pastor, he rang me, he said, Glenn, where are you right now? I said, I'm in the Trafford Centre, the mall, shopping. He said, is there someone who's non-family related who can vouch for where you are? I said, yeah, why? He says, because one of our buildings is on fire. Anyway, the building burned down and it turned out to be a, a real blessing in disguise. It was only one of our team who didn't have uh, a good alibi and he smelt of smoke for a little while after. But uh, we, we kept that on the lowdown. But it's great to be here. Paul and Priscilla as well. What an amazing couple they are. Statesmen of the, of the states people, states persons of the Church of God in the United Kingdom. I have got many very funny stories about this couple. Secondhand told to us by a mutual acquaintance. And uh, it's so great. Great to have uh, Andy, my youth pastor here. Also, my son is here tonight. Two of his friends who I don't know who they are. We just dragged them off the street so they wouldn't steal any cars tonight in Manchester. Good to have Andy Hancock. This is Andy's church, isn't it? Andy and beautiful Laura. Andy used to be in our church when we were 90 people. Our first Sunday of Audacious Church, Andy was there. And um, yeah, amazing. And then you got married and you left and we grew. A little bit of a church growth tip for you there, Leon. Just, I don't know, I'm just, just going to leave that with you. Seriously, when Andy, when Andy said he was falling in love and uh, he got engaged and he showed us a picture of Laura, we went, there is no way. There's no way. You're marrying up, brother. You're marrying up. You're either rich or anointed. And um, I've heard him preach. He must be rich. So, uh, no, no, I'm kidding, Andy. The only, the only problem with Andy over here is he's a Liverpool fan. That, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm, do we have any Liverpool fans out there? Wow. Okay. Do we have any Manchester United fans out there? One. <laughs> yeah, there's one team in Manchester. And that's all I'm saying. They wear blue. Thank you, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the time that we have together. We're, we're so excited to be in your presence. God, we know in your presence there's fullness of joy. And we just pray that, that something would take place in our hearts over this weekend, in our churches, our respective churches, that Lord, in the same way that you were anointed with the oil of joy, I pray something of the joy of the Lord would be with us and be our strength in this next season of all of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. We're so excited about what you're doing in this nation, and we truly believe in God that we will see in our lifetime a move of God in this nation that is unprecedented, I pray in Jesus' name. Finally, I pray, would you help Man City win the Premier League again this season in Jesus' name? And everyone says? A little bit dubious about that. Well, guys, so good to be with you. Uh, my, I am an Englishman by birth. I'm a Manchester boy. Uh, my dad, mum and dad are from the valleys of South Wales. My dad was a pastor. I was born in Manchester, and then when I was two, my dad stole a loaf of bread, so we got shipped off to Australia for a whole lot of years. Uh, when I was 15, we moved back to Manchester, back to the suburbs. My dad said to me two things. He said, Glenn, you're going to uh, you're gonna have to join the band. And I said, Dad, the problem with me joining the band is twofold. Number one, have you seen the band? And the band in our church comprised of two people. On one side, we had a, a very elderly lady who we affectionately called the Ancient of Days, um, we did. We were rude, I know. And she wore a fur hat and uh, she was 80% deaf and she played the organ. And on the other side of the stage was the second musician in the church who played a piano accordion and his name was Bob. And he was a builder. I'm not kidding. You can't even write this stuff. And I said, Dad, there's two problems with me joining the band. Number one, have you seen the band? And number two, I don't play an instrument. 
And he said, well, you're going to have to learn. I'm going to buy you a guitar tomorrow. So over the next six days, I learned G, C, and D and started to lead worship in our church. Second thing my dad said to me when I was 15, he said, you're going to have to be the youth pastor. I said, Dad, there's no youth in the church. He said, precisely, you're the only one wearing jeans. You've got the job. And, um, you know, most people go into ministry because of some angel, some, some, you know, Jesus appears before them or something like that. I did it because I was only the only one wearing Levi's on the particular day in question. But that was a few years ago and um, did that for five years. At the age of 20, went to Sydney, went to Bible school, read theology for four years, fell in love with my Latin American girlfriend who became my bride. And then 21 years ago, we moved to England to Sheffield where we were youth pastors for 11 years, 11 glorious years. I love being a youth pastor. I thought I knew everything. And then 11 years ago, we went to plant a church in Manchester and I realized I knew nothing. And, um, and uh, God's been so good this year. In January this year, we celebrated our 10,000th first-time decision uh, in Manchester City Centre, just in our weekend services. We're super excited about that. And also, about 18 months ago, we launched a new building project. We're building a new cathedral for Manchester. And the reason we're calling it a cathedral is because the city council couldn't understand the concept of a large church building. We showed them plans for a 2,500-seater auditorium and breakout rooms and a multi-story car park and different things, and they could not get their head around it. And three times sitting with our city planners, on the third plan, on the third time, I said to them, listen, stop thinking church, start thinking cathedral. They said, oh, why didn't you say so then? And uh, we were so thrilled because in December last year, they gave us a unanimous decision to build a cathedral, uh, 24 million pounds. Um, and then they put us a front page spread in a magazine that they send to every house in, uh, in the area. And they said, a new cathedral coming to Manchester. We didn't pay for it. They did it. And then we asked them for money. They said, no, you're going to have to raise it yourself. So, uh, but God is good. I don't know if you got your Bibles tonight. If you haven't, we've got some slides as well. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. And uh, you're going to have to go with me. I've got a bit of a husky voice, a little bit of a, a cough and a cold going on. Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. It's the words of Jesus, Jesus speaking. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I, Jesus, will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. In the original language, the word evil doers is literally the word Manchester United. Thought I'd leave you with that for free. There are not many things, there are not many things that scare me in life. Really, there are not many things at all. Uh, a few weeks ago uh, with my family, we were on vacation in a place called Lake Tahoe, 7,000 feet above sea level in California. My son and I were out late one night. We, uh, we parked the car, the rental that we had. We walked about 20 paces. We were looking for some electric scooters that you could hire with an app. But the two fully charged electric scooters that we could see on the app on our phone was locked away behind a gated compound so we couldn't access the scooters. So we turned around, it's about, I don't know, about 9.30 at night, we turned around and there next to our car, which was over there by where the wall is, stood next to our car a fully grown bear. I said to my son, Jaden, there's a bear. He says, shut up. He looked, he said, holy cow. He jumped like a kangaroo onto the gated compound, onto the gate. I've never been so scared in my life. Literally, a moment of fear. I didn't know whether I should just outrun my son or fight the bear. It was a tough decision to make. But fear was real. There's not many people in this world who, who scare me. I'm not, I'm not afraid of many people. I'm afraid of two people. One of them is my mum. She's 83 years of age. She lives on the Sunshine Coast of Australia. 
I live in Manchester. I can't get further away from her than where I live. But when my mobile phone rings and it says M-U-M, I'm not even kidding. Even though I'm in my 40s, I own houses, I have an investment portfolio, have two companies, have a church. When it says, mum, my knees start to knock. Because my mum knows when I'm up to mischief. I mean, it's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. I believe it's okay to be naughty. You're just not allowed to be naughty, naughty. Naughty, naughty sin, but naughty's okay. Jesus spat in the dirt, made mud, put it in a blind guy's eye. I would suggest that's naughty. My mum's like the eye of Sauron. She knows. She's searching for her precious. She knows. She's got this inbuilt sixth sense. And when the phone, she only ever rings me to tell me off. I'm not even kidding. She emails me if she wants to catch up, but she phones me to tell me off. The other person who scares me is my wife because she's Latin. I've been married to her for 21 years. Was it 22 which means I have been simultaneously in love and scared of her for 22 years. I think we've been married about three or four weeks. I woke up one morning, I turned to my new bride, I says, morning baby. She looked at me and she punched me on the arm, three weeks married. I said, what's up with you? She said, I had a dream that we had a fight and I'm still mad. I mean, I need your prayers. You know, my wife gets two looks in her eye. One look that says, you know, I love you, I admire you. She gets that 2% of the time. The other look she gets in her eye is this. If you open your mouth one more time, I'm going to kill you. But because she's a woman of God, she'd raise me from the dead just so she can kill me again. There are not many things that scare me in life. But I've got to be absolutely honest with you. This passage from Matthew chapter 7 freaks me out slightly. This is not an apostle, a pastor, a preacher speaking. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, fully God, fully man. Jesus says, many will say, look, Lord, I went to church every Sunday. I preached great sermons. I fasted every year. I gave in the vision offerings. I gave to missionaries. I helped people. I was generous. I even walked the second mile. Even as an English Christian, I let people cut in front of me in traffic jams. I was a proper Christian. And Jesus says, many of them who say that, I'll say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Does that worry you slightly? Four of you. I believe in the grace of the Lord Jesus. But here we have the one anointed with grace and truth still telling us these very words, this works-based theology. These people saying, look how good a Christian I was. And Jesus says, uh-uh, I don't know you. I remember my dad many years ago saying this. He said to me, Glenn, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised who is there and who isn't there. And I think really what he was doing <coughs> was he was really highlighting something that Jesus was focusing on here in Scripture. I was in a place called Palm Springs in March this year. And I was speaking at a conference, and in between sessions, I needed to go to the mall. Now, the reason I needed to go to the mall is because I have an anointing on my life that I would freely give to anybody. Just come and take it afterwards. It's free. I have an anointing for my baggage to get lost. This year, British Airways have lost my bags eight times. A few months ago, I, I had an email from British Airways, a text saying, good news, we're sending, we've found your bags, we're sending them to your home in MAD. 
Now, you may or may not know this, but every airport has a three-letter code to let you know where it is. I don't live in MAD. I live in MAN. MAD is a place called Madrid. I live in MAN, Manchester. So I called them back. I said, hey, I don't live in Madrid. They said, too late. We've sent the bags. We'll see if we can find them. It took five weeks for the bags to find me. So in March this year, I'm speaking at a conference and lots of pastors. I have literally one pair of clothes. I'm on the second day, same pair of clothes. I need to go to the mall. So I go to the mall between sessions. They drop me off. They go back to their conference. I'm walking around on my own, just getting a few bits and pieces. And I'm doing the new generation walk, which is head down, sending a text or social media or something like this. And, and, then, and then nature called. Nature called, I found that it happens now more and more that I'm over 40. And so I looked up, I looked for the sign for restroom, saw the sign. I walked down this alleyway. I I could turn left or I could turn right. I I had my head down. I I was sending a text. I looked up, I looked down. I, I walked into the restrooms and I noticed there was no standing room variety there. I thought, you know what, with gender fluidity and political correctness, maybe this is just the way we're going now and America's leading the way. So I walked in, I shut the cubicle door, and as soon as I locked the door, I instinctively knew that I was in what I did not want to be in. As I heard the click-clack of these high heels, stiletto heels coming in behind me, as these two ladies who came in behind me having the conversation, one went to the cubicle to my left, the other went to the cubicle to my right, and they carried on the conversation over my cubicle. Now, can I speak to the men for a moment and say this? Fellas, don't ever go into a lady's bathrooms. They are simply out of control. What happens in the ladies' bathrooms should stay in the ladies' bathrooms. Now I fully understand why they go in herds. As this one to my left said, and then he did this. And her friend says, no way. And I'm intimidated. And she says, yeah. And her friend says, so what did you do? She said, well, that's why we're shopping, girl. She goes, you go, girl. Retail therapy. She said, it's even better. How's it better? Well, I took his credit card. I'm shopping on his credit card. She said, yeah, that's awesome. She said, I'm going to buy two pairs of shoes. You should get the bag as well. Listen, all I know is this. I didn't know the guy they were talking about. I just I didn't like him very much. My problem was this. Now I'm in. How's he going to get out? I kind of think that that that's really what Jesus is kind of getting at here in Matthew chapter 7. That many people will think they're in, but they're not really in what they thought they were in. It's what I'm calling the over-churched generation. Men and women who are Christian by culture rather than conviction. Men and women who are Christian by heritage rather than a heart elevation. People who are Christian because of the value system rather than a revelation that it was my sin that violated Christ and held him to the cross. It wasn't the nails, nor was it the Jews or the Romans who put him there. It was my sin. 
And what I notice is this, is after 12 years of traveling, 12 years, 10 days a month overseas, speaking at conferences and events and traveling all up and down the, the, the width and the breadth of this great nation that we live in, I notice more and more a generation of men and women who I noticed are a little bit overchurched. We're in, not you guys because you're perfect. I'm talking about Manchester. We're in, but not really in. I wonder if I can break this danger down just for a moment before we get to the good news and we pray together. My, the first, my observation of this danger is this, is a generation of men and women who are over-churched and underwhelmed. We've been in church so much, we've been in conferences so many times that now it can get to a point where it's a little bit underwhelming. Isn't it interesting? You can be overwhelmed and underwhelmed, but you can't be whelmed. St. Augustine was the first person to pen these words. He said, familiarity breeds content. And, and I think the danger is this, is the more we are in something, the more familiar we become with that something. You know, if ever you've had the opportunity to change or upgrade your car, isn't it amazing how for the first few weeks and months you love it? It is the greatest thing in the world, but then before long, the familiarity begins to step in. Do you remember when you first walked into your new building? It's like, wow, but now all of a sudden, the more we step in, the danger is the less we can actually be in. If we had time, <coughs> we don't tonight, to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, we would read about a young man called Uzzah. You remember the story that the king wanted the Ark of the Covenant to live in his city, but the Ark of the Covenant lived in a man called Abinadab's house. The Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was literally the manifest power of God, and for 40 years it lived in Abinadab's house. The king sent his men to go and get the ark. They made their way to Abinadab's house. They took the ark of the covenant and they put it on the back of a cart, which was problem number one. Because the presence of God was never meant to be pulled by any mechanized format. Can I pause for a moment tonight, I grow, and say this to you, that the presence of God does not belong in a liturgy. The presence of God does not live in a building, a denomination, denomination a particular style of song, a particular way of doing the bridge back into the chorus, that is not where the presence of God lives and resides. The presence of God in Scripture was never meant to be pulled by any mechanized format. The presence of God was always meant to be carried on the shoulders of His people. The Bible says, as the ark pulled the ark, sorry, as the oxen pulled the ark of the covenant, the oxen stumbled, the cart shifted, and the presence of God started to slide towards the edge of the cart. And a man called Uzzah, a young man called Uzzah, reached out his hand to stop the ark of the covenant from falling on the floor, and God struck him dead. Now I remember being little. When I was a little boy, my Stories at home weren't Jack and Jill going up a hill or Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall. No, that's what the other kids got. My stories at night were Shamar in the lentil patch. Benaiah in that pit fighting a lion. My favorite one 
was the woman who got so annoyed with a man, she put a tent peg in his skull and killed him. It gave me nightmare for weeks, but it was an awesome story. And I remember one day my dad reading me the story of 2 Samuel 6 where God struck Uzzah down. And I said to my dad, Dad, that seems so unfair. Uzzah was just trying to help a brother out. My dad said, shush, you need to go to bed. Let me keep reading. But you know, as I reflect on Uzzah, and if we could come back to the beginning of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 for a moment, you'd discover that the Ark of the Covenant lived in Abinadab's house. Abinadab was the owner of the house. He was the father of the house. And Abinadab had a son called Uzzah. The same Uzzah who God struck dead. We could literally say here that Uzzah grew up in the uh, grew up in the house of God. Uzzah grew up in the presence of God. Uzzah should have known better because the Ark of the Covenant always had armed guards around it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You couldn't go in and put your coffee cup on the Ark of the Covenant like it was a coffee table. No, it was the presence and the power of God. And yet there was something about Uzzah, the way he treated the presence of God. Maybe what happened was this, familiarity cross the line into contempt. And Uzzah began to think like it was okay to treat the divine as though it's common. And I see that all around the world. I, I look at what Christians post on social media. We have a saying in our church, if you can't think of something good to post, think of something good to post. I look at the way people treat the house of God and the worship of God and the preaching of the word. And it begins to remind me of the story of Uzzah. Because church, I want to tell you tonight, there is nothing common about this place. There is nothing common about our sacred worship tonight. There's nothing common about the God in whose presence we step into every time we worship. But every time we treat the God of the Bible, church, the house of God, like He is common and it is common, it is though we are like Uzzah touching the ark again. And I see it. Not here, but in Manchester. A generation of men and women who become over-churched and underwhelmed. I walk out onto stages and churches and conferences and often one of the expressions I see, not from you guys, but often I get this expression from the crowd. Who are you? Don't you know how long I've been a Christian? Do you know who our pastor is? What can you tell me that I don't already know? I find it encouraging that if God can use a donkey in the Bible, He can use any of us with the Scripture. We just had a family leave our church. They joined our church 10 years ago because of the mission of the church. And now they have just left our church. I sat with them and their comment back to me was this. They said this to me, that they said even though we're involved in the children's ministry, they said the children's ministry is now not good enough. It's not uh, our connection, our involvement is not good enough to keep us here any anymore. We're only in relationship because we work on team. And I thought to myself, isn't it interesting? The very mission that brought them to church 
is no longer the mission that keeps them in church. What's happened? I'll tell you what's happened. Familiarity has bred contempt. And I notice a generation of men and women who are overchurched and, and underwhelmed. The second danger I notice here is this a generation who are over entertained and under impressed. They say to Jesus, Look at what we did. Look at our church services. Look at our conferences. We, we, we did miracles. We raised the dead. We saw so many people get saved. Did you see how well we preached and prophesied and did miracles? And we have a generation that are over-entertained and under-impressed. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is entertaining. If you don't laugh when you're reading the Bible, you're reading it wrong. I mean, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women plus children with bread and fish. I think that's awesome. If you put bread and fish together, what do you have? Fish fingers. Jesus fed them all with fish fingers. I think that's hilarious. I spent half my time reading the Bible laughing. You look at the way Jesus spoke to the religious people. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's absolutely brilliant. But that reality is this, is that we are in a generation that's over-entertained and under-impressed. I know this. I live in Manchester. We have one big football team and another one that resides in Trafford. Every weekend, tens of thousands of people come from all over the world into our city. To the economy of Manchester, football in Manchester makes as much money as if we were hosting the Olympic Games every year. Just behind our building is the Manchester Arena, where in 2016, 2.8 million people went to gigs there. It was the busiest concert venue in the world. That flow was interrupted last year with a bombing at the Ariana concert. But this year, it's on record again to be the most attended venue in the world. And as preachers, the challenge we have is this, is we come out on stage and if we're not entertaining enough, then we can see a generation of men and women who say, well, Pastor Leon, if you're not good enough, I've always got poker on my phone or Snapchat. And the danger, folks, is this. The danger in an over-entertained and under-impressed generation is this, is that now preachers and church leaders have got to come up on stage juggling 39 balls of fire while doing a hula hoop and walking on water and raising the dead simultaneously because we are so over-entertained and under-impressed. The danger becomes that preachers now present a version of Jesus who is culturally and politically correct. But he ain't. Friend, do you know why they put Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago? It's because he was politically incorrect. And he still is. One of the young men in our church, he's 14, he came up to me recently. He said, Glenn, I wonder if you could listen to this podcast from a friend of yours who leads a mega church in America. I said, why? He said, I noticed something about this podcast. So I listened to this podcast and I realized in listening to this podcast of this friend who leads this mega church that while he was preaching, not once did he quote the Bible, read the Bible, not once did he mention God, not once did he mention Jesus. And I understand the challenge that we're in. We're in a world that is over-entertained and under-impressed. And it's a danger. And, and maybe that's why Jesus says, even though you came in and you, you, you appeared to do the right things, I'm still going to say, away from me, I never knew you. We're getting to the good stuff <clears throat> in, a, in a second. The third danger I notice is this, a danger of a generation that are overindulged and underfilled. Just like when you eat pizza. kind of just doesn't eat the sides, does it? Hit the sides. You can, you, can eat, you can eat full two pizzas and still be hungry. 
overindulged and underfilled. It's like Christmas Day. How much turkey can a man eat in one day? But it's amazing over the next 24, 48, 36 hours or whatever hours, 72 hours, it's amazing how much turkey you can actually find ways to digest, put it in a blender, drink it like soup, like a juice. We've got a generation that's overindulged and underfilled. I call this the magic it. The search for that one thing that's going to fill me up and make me content. Every single person is searching for the magic it. I was recently at a, at a football game in London. A friend had a box and I was in the box and there in the box I was surrounded by billionaires. And I saw how the 0.001% of the world lives. Me and seven billionaires. And they're talking about their yachts, their villas, their houses. They're talking about how much money they made, how that share's doing, what happened over here, that investment fund. And, and it was a fascinating conversation to be a part of. And I had no, nothing to contribute whatsoever, nothing. Until there was a lull in conversation. And I leant forward and I said, but fellas, how are your families? As deadly silence hit the room and tumbleweed blew through the boardroom there. And one began to talk about his third marriage, the other one on his fourth, the other one has given up with women, the other one has lost count, no relationship with children. And as they talked, I saw men who were hurting and hollow and empty and still trying to fill and find the magic it. Just recently in our church, in the last kind of two months, uh, one of the premier footballers came in and got saved radically saved and what's really interesting talking to this person and the family is this is as you talk to them and of course we know what their salaries are and where they live and you see it all in the media it's interesting how just one decision in church I need this Jesus somehow in a moment the magic it was filled because my friend, it doesn't matter how much money you have or not. It doesn't matter how successful in the world's eyes or not you are. Every single person is living in a generation that is overindulged and underfilled. I think if we had time, we could go to the book of Ecclesiastes to read the words of the wisest man who has ever lived. His name was King Solomon. King Solomon had an annual income of $25 million a year. He sat on a throne of gold and ivory. He built the, the temple at a cost of about $1.8 billion US dollars. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says this, I tried everything. I did everything. He, he built buildings. He tried relationships. He had wives. He had concubines. He had cattle. He had donkeys. He had everything. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 10 and 11, he says this, I denied myself nothing. It was all meaningless. And 10 chapters later, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says this, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. The wisest man ever. Nobody questions him. He was the wisest man ever. Still speaking true words in 2018 to a generation of men and women who are overchurched, overfilled. Fear God, keep his commandments. 
Now, now when he's talking about fearing God, he's not talking about the emotion I had when I saw the bear. He's not talking about the emotion I have when, when, when M-U-M comes up on my mobile phone. No, the fear of God in Scripture means something else. The fear of God has different shades of meaning. I think we've got a slide. Yeah, the fear of God means to acknowledge God's good intentions. Fear is produced by God's Word. It makes us receptive to wisdom, gives a proper perspective of ourselves, helps us when we're tempted, motivates us to become more like Christ. And so when Solomon is talking about fearing God, that's what he's talking about. But he says to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, how many commandments is he talking about? Ten, of which none of us could meet them. I mean, the religious leaders who knew better turned those ten into over 600 laws. Jesus comes and says, love the Lord your God, love the neighbor as yourself. And in the book of Romans, we have this summary on what it means to keep God's commandments. The commandments are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. So in a generation of men and women who are overindulged and underfilled, where Solomon says we should fear God and keep his commandments, really he's saying keep God in his proper place and prefer each other. Folks, I want to suggest that that church would see revival. The church that always keeps God in his proper place. The church who when we come into his presence, in fact, we bring his presence with us. As we come together in his presence, we keep him in his proper place. We're not going to treat this this Sunday routine, this Saturday routine as something that's common. It's just another church service. In fact, the Amos verse at the first video, at the start of the meeting, God in there says, I am sick of your religious services. Why is he saying that? I think it's because we've become so familiar. Not you, but in Manchester. The last danger is a generation of men and women who are overchurched and underreached. Overchurched and underreached. I wonder if the musos can come and join me. Overchurched and underreached. Folks, we live in England. We know church. Even people who don't go to church know church. I stand on the front doors of our auditorium every Sunday. We are averaging at the moment 75 first-time guests every Sunday. I shake them by the hand. They don't know who I am. I don't know who they are. I say, hey, welcome to church. They say, thank you. They walk through the doors. They walk into our auditorium just like this, and they look around. They go, this doesn't look like church. People say to me, oh, what do you do? I'm a minister of a church. They say, you don't look like a minister of a church. I say, thank you. I was on a plane flying from London. I sat next to a BBC producer. He looked at me and said, what do you do? I said, I'm a minister of a church. He goes, you don't look like a minister of a church. I said, thanks so much. And he said, what sort of church? Are you Catholic? Are you, you Anglican? Are you Mormon? And he's gone through all this list of things. And I don't like to get into that sort of stuff. So I said to him, well, have you seen BBC Songs of Praise? He says, yeah. I said, well, we're the MTV version of that. It's like, I've got a weird picture in my mind right now. He's like, are you happy clappy then? I said, no, we're intelligently happy. We know church. You notice how people who can be the life of the party outside church, as soon as they come into church, it's like, 
something happens. You feel like saying, who died? I mean, I know who died, but did you get the memo? Three days later, he got up again. You, you, you know what I mean? Like we know church. You just got to fly over this nation, coming into land in any airport. Just look out to your left and right. Count the steeples. Coming down the car park, also known as the M6 today. You look left and right. We know, we know church. We are overchurched. That was there. Overchurched. It's that Manchester United fan or Liverpool fan up there, isn't it? You're a hooligan. Overchurched and underreached. We know church. How cool is this? Somebody got saved in our church a little while back. Came up to me. I'd never seen him before. He goes, this place is awesome. I said, thanks so much. He said, it's just like the pub, just without the alcohol. I said, well, we've got a cupboard over here. I go, no, I didn't. We know church. Folks, England knows church. The black country knows church. But we are over-churched and underreached. We're not even a Christian nation anymore. We're, they're calling us a post-Christian nation. I was uh, with my wife eight or nine years ago. We're back in our home state in Australia and we had some time free. So we went scuba diving on a place called the Great Barrier Reef. You would have seen it on Finding Nemo. And we jumped on a boat with about 20 other divers, none of them Christians. The scuba instructor was not a Christian. He took us five miles off the beach. Everybody was blind drunk. My wife and I, not. The scuba instructor, as he opened a can of beer, he said, ladies and gentlemen, while you're diving, several things to look out for. Number one, if you see a great white shark, swim the other way. <laughs> so the second thing is this. He says, if while you're diving, you get into distress, look out for and hang on to the Jesus line. So I put my hand up. He goes, bro, it's not school, mate. Put my hand down. I said, mate, what's the uh, Jesus line? He goes, if you look at the back of the boat there, you're going to see a big long rope floating across the, across the water. And he says, uh, there's some buoys, some boys, orange buoys. And then hanging from those buoys are, 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 are chains 10, 15 feet into the water. We call it the Jesus line. So I said, yeah, but why do you call it the Jesus line? He looked at me and said, don't you know, dummy? Everyone needs a saviour. Four years ago, I walked into our new Christians class. I stood at the back as we were teaching the Christians the new rules on what it means to be a Christian. And I was vexed, Pastor Leon. Something happened on the inside. Now, I'm a second generation Pentecostal pastor. I grew up in church. I know the theology. I know our traditions. Very similar. Uh, you know it too. I grew up in a generation when we were more known for what we couldn't do than what we could do. I've heard every argument for every subject that anybody can throw at me. And I sat there in the back of our new Christians class and I heard, and then we do this, and this is what it means to be a Christian, then you do that, then you do that. And afterwards, we sat with our team and sat, we sat together and, and the conversation flowed like this. And what would happen if instead of giving these new Christians rules, 
of what it means to be a Christian. What would happen if we just got out of the way and showed them Jesus? And one of the pastors said, yeah, but what about those who are living together, not married? I said, let them. And even as I said it, I was like, I'm going to burn in hell forever. So we said, well, what about those other ones who've got those sexual things going on? Those are the, 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 and, and they began to list those things. I said, I know, I know, I know. But let's just try it for three weeks. Let's just show them Jesus. You see, when I got married to Sophie, I soon realized that this bachelor boy was not going to be good enough for this girl. I had to change. I had to pick up my own socks. I had to put the toilet seat down. These things were important for a happy marriage. But can I just say this? The thing that changed me was not fear. It was love. What would happen if we just showed them the real Jesus? Will the real Jesus please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. Do you know what we found, Leon? We literally found this. We literally found people, new Christians, I mean, get this, falling in love with Jesus. And then they would come to us and say, you know something, we're living like this. We don't feel like we should do because part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, to nudge, and to point the way to Jesus and so we ended up had people who were living together, who ended up not living together, being in the same house maybe, but in separate bedrooms. They promised us, and then we married them. We, we, we had people coming out of the wood. People say, I need to do this. I need to change this. I need to change this. What does the Bible say? And because it came from them, not us, because it actually came from the Holy Spirit, we saw our retention rates increase. Four hands go up, one sticks. No, baby. Four hands go up, three sticks they're not falling in love with church. Uh, I finish. I've got to finish. Because here's where we end up. You can be overchurched, but you cannot be overpresenced. Because what we need is the presence of God. I want to contend. I want to argue with you that in our church services, more than we need a slick program, and it does have to be slick, more than it's quick, and it does have to be quick, more than organization, and all those things are important, and leadership development is so important, that actually what we need is the very thing that got you here in the first place. Because I remember where I was sitting when I was 12. I can take you to the very room, the very street, the very building, the very bit of carpet where I, on my knees at the age of 12, I said to God, God, I am so over church. And God in His graciousness said, yeah, but you ain't seen nothing yet, boy. And I had an encounter with His presence that changed me forever. The Bible says in His presence there's fullness of joy. It's been in His presence that we've seen people with 12 terminal cancers gone in in His presence. It's in His presence that marriages are restored. It's in His presence that depression is lifted from people's minds and souls. It is in His presence that in His church we've seen cutters have their arms and legs totally healed in His presence. That only happens in His presence. Can, can Can I contend with you tonight? Can I urge you tonight that actually what we need more than anything... It's just a sense of His divine, wonderful, 
manifest presence. So come on, I grow. Would you stand to your feet with me across this place? Father, tonight in your presence, honestly, we've reached seasons in our life where we too have been overchurched. But tonight, we're really hungry for your presence. Father, I want to thank you for the testimony of every single person standing in this auditorium right now. Thank you, God for their stories. Thank you, God, that even right now as they look back, they remember a time in their life where they encountered your presence. And we know, Lord, that it wasn't a good sermon, a great song. It was your presence that changed us. And Father, even now, as we think about our friends, our work colleagues, our family members who are not walking with you, Father, our heart's desire and our prayer is that each and every one of them would encounter your presence. If there's somebody you're believing for in your heart right now, would you lift your hands to heaven just across this place? Father, for every person we're thinking about right now, for every word, every name that's on our lips in prayer, God, we're asking that, Lord, you would cause you would cause something to happen in this next season that our friends would encounter your presence. Oh God, we know church, but we need to know your presence. Father, I pray tonight for these people. May your presence set them free. May they find a home in your presence. Father, may this church and every church represented in this room tonight, Lord, I pray that we would see a season come to pass, this next season where we find these, these unsaved friends and family members who don't know you. Father, that they would begin to say, I feel like I'm coming home. I feel like I'm coming alive. I feel like something has happened in my life. Lord, I want to pray right now. I pray and I prophesy over every church, over every pastor, over every preacher, over every worship leader, over every every small group leader, over every department and ministry leader, that, Lord, we would see Your presence manifest in our services. Oh, may love change us. May love change us tonight. standing, I want you right now, just where you're standing, would you invite the Holy Spirit 
right now to fill your life again, to touch you. Paul says, Paul speaks about being filled and to keep on being filled. Would you just do that right now, Christian people? Just say, God, would you fill me? Fill me afresh. Holy Spirit, I want to be more aware of your presence. I want to know your voice more. I want to know when you're leading me, you're guiding me, you're speaking to me. Spirit of God, may we sense you in our workplaces. May we sense your presence. I pray even as we go home tonight, as we drive in our car, as we go home to have supper in a few moments' time, may your presence be with us. tonight just step in just a little bit further into his presence I find that the Jesus of the Bible always responded to hunger he always responded to expectation when blind Bartimaeus he cried out to Jesus he said have mercy on me and yet Jesus the Bible says continued to walk by him but blind Bartimaeus was not satisfied he cried out all the more it didn't matter what the crowd were doing he cried out to the presence of Jesus he said Jesus I need something I need your presence in my life we need your presence do something right now if you are a parent in this room a parent and your children are not walking with God I want to take a moment to pray for you and vicariously through you pray for your sons and daughters I'm believing tonight that sons and daughters will come back to the Lord if you are a parent in this room you're saying Glenn Glenn uh, maybe I listen I feel God speaking to me right now about a parent in this room you're saying you know what it's my fault that my son, my daughter is not in the house of God. It's because I treated them like this. I did this. I said this. I put this expectation and pressure on you. The devil says shame on you. God tonight says shame off you. I want you to know that God knows where your son and daughter is right now. And I want to pray for them. I want to pray for you, but I want to pray for them. And I don't want to embarrass anybody. This is too embarrassing. Please don't respond. But if you're saying, Glenn, would you pray for my son? Pray for my daughter. Can you quickly leave your seat? Would you come down here? I want to pray for your children right now. I'm going to pray that God touches them them right where they are, whatever club they're in, whatever house they're in, whatever country they're in right now, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would just begin to nudge them, that He'd begin to really speak to them and they become more and more aware of Him in Jesus' mighty name. Pastor Leon, just while they're coming, I want to say this to you tonight. Uh, I felt in worship, God speak to me, that there have been, uh, uh, it's been a past season in your life where God has given you a word. It, it's almost like the only way I can describe it is this. It's like when somebody gives you a gift at Christmas and at the time you're looking, oh, that's nice. And you put it away and then forget about it. And then months, even years go by and you open the drawer and you go, where did that come from? It's just what I need. I believe that in a past season, God's, God's given you a prophetic word, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom and given you something that I believe in, in, a, in a soon to come season, the Spirit of God is going to remind you of something that He spoke to you about all the way back then, which you've forgotten about, because we all do, God speaks so much, but it's going to come alive in your spirit at the right time, so you would know you have the right tools, the, the right everything you need for that next season that you're about to walk through in Jesus' name. The other thing is this, I believe God's going to give you a supernatural ability to, to spy leaders 
to, to, to see leaders even before they know that they're called to be leaders. It's almost like a light bulb. You, you're going to be in church, you're going to be in coffee shops, and you're going to see light bulbs being illuminated over people's heads. And for some of them, you're going to begin to argue, say, well, they're not even Christians. They're not even God. Look, look at the way they're living. But God's going to use you in a peculiar way to tap into the gift of God in their lives. Of course, they'll get saved, but grow to become leaders in Jesus' name. Pastor Liam, would you lift your hands to heaven just for a moment? Father, I pray right now for Leon. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for him. Thank you for his skill set, his character, and his anointing that has brought this church so far. But Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you seal these words in his heart, his mind, his spirit right now, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. We are super excited about what this next season means for this church because of the call and the anointing that's upon his life in Jesus' name. Amen. Parents down the front, would you lift your hands to heaven, please? Hey, everybody out there, do you mind reaching out your hands towards these wonderful people? You may not know their kids' names, but I want you to know God knows them. God knows them. Father, I pray right now for every single one of these wonderful parents. Father, I pray firstly right now for any who carry any sense of guilt or whatever there may be because of some parenting issues from history. Lord, I pray right now that supernaturally you would just relieve them of that in Jesus' name. I pray, Spirit of God, take off the pressure, take off the heaviness, take off any sense of guilt any of them may feel because God, we realize that our children are responsible for their own decision making. But right now, we stand together in faith, united with a common cause, believing God that where two or three are gathered, there you are, knowing that God, if we ask and keep on asking, that you are a God who is faithful. So I pray right now in the mighty name of Jesus for their sons and their daughters, wherever they are right now. We're so thankful, God, that while we are here, You are over there. You are with our sons and daughters right now, right where they are. Lord, we're thankful that they cannot escape Your presence. They cannot escape Your love. And so I pray, Spirit of God, would You begin to nudge their hearts right now. In this next season of their lives, would You put around them good, Bible-believing Christians. Lord, may they find themselves almost being hounded or or plagued or, or tormented in the right sense with Christian people all around them who would just sense the need to talk and share with them about the Gospel. Lord, we pray for salvation. We pray that they will come home. We pray that they will return to faith. I pray that every single one of these parents down here would begin to get phone calls from sons and daughters saying, Mum, Dad, you're not going to believe it, but I just got saved. I pray in Jesus' Name that you would do something remarkable to a generation that have become over-churched. May they encounter you, your great name, in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Can I just pray for two more things, Pastor Lee, and I don't mean to take too much time. Folks, you can stay down the front. You don't need to go anywhere. Hey, listen, just where you're standing right now. Five years ago, my wife started to stop sleeping. She stopped sleeping and insomnia hit her. For 10 months, she didn't sleep. Um, the doctor says depression is trying to grip your soul. And um, she beat it by literally meditating on the presence of God. She got a hobby. She started exercising. She wrote a book about it to help people who were going through it. But worry and anxiety became part of her daily battle and her daily journey. You know, many years ago, I preached a message on worry and anxiety. And one of the comments I made was this, is worry is practical atheism. You can say with your mouth that God is alive and real, but if in your next thought, 
you're full of worry, your mind is telling you that God does not exist. And I remember my wife saying to me, Glenn, I don't, I don't mean to have this anxiety and worry. It's just that I wake up and it's there. And every day it's a battle to deal with it. Back in 2008 or 2009, I was at a football game, Manchester City Football Club. And while we were at the game, all the fans started to sing about one of our mercurial players. His name was Uwe Rosler, a German footballer who played for City 10 years earlier in the 90s. And I remember we all stood in the stadium, we were all singing his name. And none of us knew why. Nor did we know what was happening to Uwe Rosler at that time. You see, while we were singing his name, Uwe was back in his home nation of Germany, dying of cancer. And he'd given up on his life. One of Uwe's best buddies was in the stadium in Manchester that day and he rang Uwe's wife and here's what he said. He said, hey, are you with Uwe? And she said, yeah, I'm with him right now. He's not very well, he's really sick. I think he's given up. And the friend said this, put the phone to his ear. And so while Uwe Rosa was dying of cancer, she put the mobile phone to his ear and he heard 60,000 Manx singing his name. We didn't know this was happening. But six months later, I was at the game with my son over here. And before the game started, the compere came out to the pitch with a microphone. He said, ladies and gentlemen, before we kick off today, it's great to have one of our famous old players back, Uwe Rosler. Will you please welcome him onto the pitch? And we all stood. We all sang his song. As he came out to the pitch, he grabbed the microphone and he said this. You can Google it. You can see it. It's on BBC website from 10 years ago or so. He said this. He said, I was home in Germany. I was dying of cancer six months ago. But then you sang my name. And when I heard you sing my name, I got the resolve to fight. And he said, and I want you to know I'm here. I'm getting better and better because you sang my name. The Bible says this, he rejoices over you with singing. One of the greatest things to combat worry and anxiety in a busy world is to stop, to pray, and then to eavesdrop on heaven's song. You're going to be surprised what Jesus is singing about you. He loves you. He's got a plan and a purpose for you. Bet your best days are yet to come. These are the good old days. We're not looking back. We're moving forward. Right now, Jesus is singing your name to the Father in heaven. There is a song taking place. And I wonder if we can do this without being spooky. That's not my goal. Would you close your eyes across this place? And I want us to take a minute just to be quiet in His presence. I would ask you not, not to pray right now. I would ask you not to sing. I just want you to take a moment to tune your ear into what heaven is singing over you.